Well, it was a few weeks ago that we celebrated Good Friday and Easter. And so in connection with that, I thought it'd be good to take a look at a passage that takes us to events that are taking place on Easter Sunday. And that's found in Luke 24, the passage I want to have us consider this afternoon. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. And the events that we read of here take place on the first day of the week, the same day Jesus rises from the dead. And a group of women have gone to the tomb to visit the tomb and found that it's empty. And the angels say to them, he's not here, he's risen. And the women run back to the disciples and tell them the news. And the disciples don't believe it. They're thinking that these women are just making up stories like women do, so they think. We know that's not true, but that's what they, they think the women are talking a bunch of nonsense. And no one has yet seen the risen Jesus. So they don't know what's going on. They've forgotten about the prophecies of Jesus rising. And so they think maybe someone stole his body. Maybe he's been laid elsewhere. But they're confused. They don't know that he's risen. And so this story is the account of two disciples, one who's named Cleopas and the other, we don't know the other disciple's name. It could be another man. Uh, it could be Cleopas's wife. We don't know. But it's not one of the 12 disciples. These are two other disciples from the broader group. And they're walking away from Jerusalem where all the events have taken place over Good Friday and following. And now they're heading to Emmaus. Let's hear this story from Luke 24, verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As they drew near to the village they were going to, he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. 
Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. There ends our reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for this account we have of events that took place on Resurrection Sunday, how you revealed yourself to these disciples. We pray that you would open our eyes as we look to your word and teach us and encourage us through it. We ask that your spirit would move among us to be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you ever had it where someone you really trust or someone you're really close to lets you down in a big way? They leave you feeling not just disappointed, but utterly dejected, devastated. Maybe you had high hopes or expectations that are rooted in a friend or a spouse or someone you trust deeply that they're going to do something or be there for you in a certain way or you anticipate from a manager or a boss a promotion or an increase in salary or maybe a teacher is giving you hopes that you're going to get a scholarship or accepted at a certain university and it doesn't happen. They let you down. Or maybe you come to Canada and you had high hopes for life in Canada and you find out oh, it's so expensive to live here and I'm so busy and lonely and trying to make ends meet and got to work so hard and it feels like a letdown. We can feel so let down and then it can make us feel hopeless. And sometimes we can even feel that when these other people let us down or when these expectations we have aren't met, that God is letting us down. Well, sadness can then grip us. Our hopes can be shattered. And that's how these two disciples on the road to Emmaus felt. They felt not just slightly disappointed. They feel utterly dejected. They had been let down in a big way, not by just another human being or expectations of a country they were going to, but they felt let down by Jesus himself. Not because Jesus did anything wrong, of course not, but they had completely lost hope because they didn't understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. So they're walking away from Jerusalem with their hopes shattered and their hearts empty. But our passage is about how the risen Jesus reveals himself to these two dejected disciples. And the emphasis is on the word how, not the fact that Jesus reveals himself to them, but how he goes about revealing himself to them and lifting their spirits in the process. So we want to look at three points. And I'm just wondering, do people have this sheet in front of them with the um, scripture verses? Okay, so I was good. Okay, yeah. So we'll just look at the um, how Jesus reveals himself to these disciples by traveling the road to Emmaus with them, 
and then by explaining the scriptures to them, and finally by breaking bread for them. So first of all, by traveling the road with them. Uh, the disciples had been in Jerusalem over the course of the past week. And these disciples had come to know Jesus very well over the past three years. They knew that Jesus proved to be a powerful preacher and teacher and miracle worker. They probably saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey one week before. But now, how are they feeling? Well, their hopes are shattered. Their hearts are filled with despair because their expectations were not met. What were they expecting? They were expecting that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem and sit on the throne in Jerusalem, overthrow the Roman oppressors, get rid of the oppressive taxation, remove these corrupt Jewish leaders who had curried favor with the Roman officials, replace them with the 12 closest companions who would be Jesus' top cabinet ministers. And now Jesus would be on the throne in Jerusalem, ruling with Israel restored and the Romans gone. Because that's what they expected, the city was astir with excitement as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But what was the reality that happened? As that week wore on, none of that happened. And on Thursday night, Jesus was betrayed early Friday morning. He went into trial. He was arrested, falsely accused, tried in a Roman court by a pushover governor, Pilate, who was swayed by a Jewish mob who hated Jesus. And he was condemned. He was mocked, beaten, crucified, and entombed. Their hopes were shattered. They didn't expect any of this. That's why they are so sad. Verse 17, Jesus says to them, why are you walking and or why are you so sad? Why are you so sullen and gloomy? Their faith is at an all-time low. They've lost faith in Jesus as Redeemer and Messiah. Verse 21, they said, we were hoping that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping, but not anymore. Their hope died as Jesus died. They're aware that the tomb is empty. They're aware that the angels have announced that he's alive. They're aware that it's the third day since the tomb has been, or since he was put in the tomb. And yet they're not putting this two-piece puzzle together that the empty tomb means he's risen. Their hope was buried as Jesus was buried. So they're journeying back with heavy hearts to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, this stranger sidles up alongside them while they're walking. Verse 16 tells us their eyes were restrained, so they didn't know who this stranger was. This is more than just the disciples being ignorant it's a divinely imposed restraint of sight. God himself is pre preventing these two disciples from recognizing who Jesus is at this point in time. And we'll see how this is significant in a while. But right now we want to focus on why it's significant that Jesus sidles up alongside them and journeys with them without revealing who he is. You see, Jesus is taking time to enter the world of these two disciples. 
He's coming alongside them and joins them on their journey, meeting them where they are at in their life. Before he speaks into their despair, before he rebukes them for their lack of understanding and their lack of faith, he shows care and kindness and compassion. He just takes an interest in where they're at. He asks them questions to draw them out. And before telling them anything, he listens to them. Jesus is exemplifying the wisdom that we read of in Proverbs 18, verse 13. There we read, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. And Jesus is showing himself to be that high priest we read of in Hebrews 2, verse 18 and 4, verse 15. He shows himself to be a merciful and faithful high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And so there's a lesson for us in this as we minister to others. Something that we can learn as we approach those who are either struggling in their faith or who've never had faith in Christ, or who've given up the faith. You know, we can so often think, well, they should know better. They should not be doing that or thinking that. And we can right away want to walk up to someone and rebuke them and tell them exactly what they should believe and what they should do and inject the truth into their minds. But Jesus' approach is different. He's so gracious. He journeys with them comes alongside them and gives them company in the midst of their doubts and their afflictions. He lends a listening ear and he lets them express their sadness, their disillusionment. And he even asks them questions to get them to reveal their heart and to express their doubts. And the irony is, Jesus, who's asking them questions and getting them to talk, is the only one who knows exactly what's going on. Everyone else is confused and doesn't know what's happened. Jesus does, and yet he says to them, verse 17, why are you so sad? And they respond, are you the only stranger here in Jerusalem? No, Jesus knows it all. But yet he's asking them, why are you so sad? What things have happened, he says to them. They They'd respond, don't you know? It's been front uh, page headlines, what's happened in Jerusalem in the last three days. Jesus says, what things? And gets them to talk. And he listens compassionately. He doesn't hurry them because he knows that that process is important. He knows that these people who have these doubts need time and space to work through their struggles, their disillusionment, their sense of abandonment and betrayal. The second lesson we need to learn from this is that we need to know the scriptures in their entirety. We can't pick and choose just the parts that we like or that are easy to read and then kind of skip over the other parts. You see, the real reason that these two disciples are so downcast and so sad is because they have in their Bible reading in the past, picked out the passages that they like. Passages that talk about how Jesus is going to defeat the enemy and crush the Romans, crush the wicked nations. They probably love Psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which talk about how Jesus, the Messiah, will dash their enemies to pieces. Or Isaiah 63, which speaks of the day of vengeance against the wicked, where God will trample the nations in his righteous anger. 
But they've skipped over all the passages that predict the Messiah's suffering. And that's why they are so sad. They don't understand what the Messiah had to go through. And we need to keep that in mind for ourselves, that we don't just pick the parts of the Bible that we like to read. Like, let's say Psalm 112, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His descendants will be mighty on the earth and wealth and riches will be in his house. Or Psalm 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. It'll be happy and it'll be well with you. Your wife will be a fruitful vine. Your children will be olive shoots. Those are passages are true, absolutely. And they're blessings we should look forward to. But we can't skip passages that present the challenges and the cost of following Christ. Like Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. The world will hate you. The world will persecute you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. The time might come when whoever kills you will think they're offering God a service. You see, we'll become very discouraged in our Christian life if we skip over those hard parts and we're going to think God's letting us down because there's a struggle in my life now. We need to read the whole Bible and then we will know God's not abandoned us in the hard times. He actually allows the hard times and we'll look at that. The providence of God can be sometimes hardships in life, but he never abandons us. He will never leave us. He will never let us down in those hard times. But these disciples forgot that the Messiah would experience hard times, suffering and struggle. So he travels with the disciples for a while. He listens to their pain, gets to know where they're at. And then after listening to them for a while, then he starts teaching, starts talking to them. And that's our second point, explains the scriptures to them. After showing love and care by listening, he begins teaching. And it's good to remember the order of this here. It's been said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's really true. Jesus could have just started talking and telling them the way it is, but he first showed them love by listening. And that way, when he starts speaking, they really listen. Same with us. Show love for people. Make sure they know you care for them and then speak into their life. And then if people know you love and care for them because you've listened to them and shown them love, they'll also even receive a rebuke from you. And that's actually how Jesus begins in verse 25. He says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That might sound harsh to our polite Canadian ears, but it's not as harsh as it might seem. I mean, it is a rebuke, but you can think of it as Jesus saying, oh, you who are so slow to understand, oh, you who are so lacking in understanding, or oh, you clueless ones, you should know better. And in verse 26, it's a rhetorical question. Didn't these things have to happen to the Messiah? And then he would enter his glory? And the answer is, of course, these things had to happen. The whole Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would first suffer and die before entering his glory. But these disciples read their Bibles selectively. Well, Jesus now begins to explain the scriptures to them, and he's going to launch into what you could call the master's seminary class. 
Verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That phrase, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, is just a Jewish way of saying, beginning with the first five books of the Bible written by Moses and going all the way through to all the prophets, all the way to the last one, Malachi. In other words, the textbook this stranger is going to use as he teaches these disciples is the entire Old Testament. And he's not going to skip over the not-so-nice parts. He shows, as he teaches them, how even the tragic events that have transpired in the course of the past week in Jerusalem are all predicted with precision in the Old Testament. Now, what passages did Jesus turn to and quote? Obviously, he didn't touch upon all the passages in the Old Testament that alluded to him. There would have been no time for that in this two or three hour walk they were on together. And if we try to look at all of them, we'll be, you won't make it to work Monday morning because we'll still be here. But Jesus gave an interpretive sampling from the entire Old Testament. So if we look at some of the Old Testament passages that are quoted by the New Testament or commented on in the New Testament, then we get a pretty good idea of what kind of things Jesus might have been saying to them and what passages he might have been reading. Because it's the Spirit of Christ who guided the New Testament authors and gave them the insights to make the connections between the New and Old Testament and between the Old Testament and Jesus. What passages did Jesus turn to? Maybe he began with Genesis 3.15, which is the very first gospel promise. A promise spoken in a curse delivered to Satan. Remember what that is? Genesis 3.15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And the seed of the woman will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And maybe Jesus showed how he is the seed of the woman, which the Apostle Paul does in Galatians 3, 16. Uh, we read, now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. So the promise to Abraham about seed is just an extension or an expansion of the promise made about the seed of the woman. And Paul says that seed is Jesus himself. He would have learned that from Jesus. Maybe Jesus turned to Genesis 22 and spoke of how Abraham's sacrifice of his dearly loved and only son Isaac is a picture of how God the Father sacrificed his dearly loved and only son Jesus. And in Hebrews 17, the author of Hebrews there tells us that in a figurative sense, Abraham did receive his son Isaac back from the dead, showing that it's a picture of Jesus who did die and rise, literally. Maybe Jesus talked about the life of Joseph, and we'll talk about that in our second service, but maybe he talked about how Joseph went down into the depths of the earth in the pit and in prison before being raised up and exalted to the highest place in Egypt to rule over it. Maybe he talked about the Passover lamb. You remember what the requirements for selecting a Passover lamb were? There were three requirements. They couldn't just pick any lamb. In Exodus 12, verse 5, the Israelites were told, go to the field and pick a lamb, but it's got to be a male. It has to be 
one year old, so in its prime of life, and it has to be without any defect. Maybe Jesus pointed out, that's me. I'm offering myself in the prime of my life. I'm the male without defect. And John the Baptist says just that when he sees Jesus approaching. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe Jesus talked about the bronze snake. You remember how the Israelites were complaining in the wilderness soon after they were uh, delivered from Egypt? Said to Moses, why did you bring us into this desert? Just to kill us? There's no bread here, no water, nothing but this miserable manna which we detest. And then what did God do? He sent venomous snakes to bite the Israelites and many died. And then they cried out for mercy and God told Moses, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, a wooden pole. And anyone who looks at that bronze serpent in faith will not die, they'll be saved. Maybe Jesus talked about, which he does in John 3, verses 14 and 15, how just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. See how all these things are talking about Jesus' suffering, right? The Passover lamb, the being lifted up on a pole. It's all predictions of his suffering. And Jesus likely turned to the Psalms as well. Think of Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. You think that these disciples' hearts started to warm and make connections as they heard that? Oh, we heard about Judas, his own disciple, who was identified as the one who would betray him by breaking bread with Jesus. Psalm 55, verse 12, also speaks of that. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once had sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. Maybe Jesus turned to Psalm 22. I'm sure he did. A prophecy of all the suffering he would endure as he was mocked by the Jews and forsaken by God. Think of... Verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 22. All who mock, see me mock me. They hurl insults and shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And that's exactly what the soldiers had said when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And they're probably thinking, oh, that was predicted here. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Oh, and we saw that too at the foot of the cross. And verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, those words of Psalm 22, Jesus spoke from the cross. The disciples are starting to see these connections to the suffering that happened and that it's predicted in the Old Testament. And their hearts start warming and their confusion and their depression begins to melt away as scriptures come alive in a new way to them. And then maybe Jesus turns to Psalm 16, which promises the resurrection. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Wow, a promise of the resurrection. Hmm. And Peter talks about exactly that, and he quotes that in Acts 2, connecting it to Jesus' resurrection. Or Isaiah 53 
He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. Peter writes about that too in 1 Peter 2, 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. You see, Peter would have got that from Jesus. Perhaps Jesus explained that passage to these disciples. But as this stranger is walking with these two disciples to Emmaus, as Jesus is opening the word and looking at these Old Testament scriptures and reading them, these two disciples are starting to realize, oh, all the bad things that happened to the Messiah in this past week are not obstacles to his work as Messiah. They don't disqualify him as Messiah. That actually makes it all the more believable that he is the Messiah because we didn't, we overlooked that part. But now we see it. And they're having these aha moments and their hearts begin to burn as they understand this. But still, this man who's teaching them from the Old Testament is a stranger. He's not revealed himself to them yet. Why didn't this stranger, why didn't Jesus just walk up to them and say, here I am, it's me. Look, I'm risen. Look at the wounds in my hands. Look at the wound in my side. It's me. Get rid of your despair and rejoice. I've risen. Jesus could have alleviated their doubts just like that. But he doesn't. He goes on a two or more hour journey with them and simply explains the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because he wants to teach them that the scriptures are the basis by which we understand who Jesus is. He is going to soon send these disciples out into the world to make more disciples. And he's showing them the way that you proclaim the risen Christ is by pointing to the word of God. Disciples are not going to be made by Jesus appearing to all these different people throughout the world. Disciples aren't going to be made by dreams and visions as the foundation of their faith. Disciples will be made by proclaiming the word. He wants these disciples to rest their faith on the foundation of the word, not just this special experience they have of seeing Jesus with their physical eyes. Matthew Henry, uh, an Old Testament, or sorry, a, a commentator and pastor says, there's a golden thread of gospel grace that runs through the whole web of the Old Testament. Christ is the best expositor of scripture, and even after his resurrection, he led people to know the mystery concerning himself, not by advancing some new notions, but by pointing them to the scriptures and showing how scripture was fulfilled and telling them to turn to the earnest study of it. Well, these disciples start understanding the sufferings of the Messiah as he points to the Old Testament. And now they're starting to understand why the tomb is empty. But they've still not met the man who's risen, the Messiah. They've heard reports that he's alive, but they've not seen him. Their eyes are divinely restrained from understanding it's Jesus on this road. You see, again, the reason Jesus does this is so they'll have their faith 
the foundation of their faith be scripture. Jesus might appear to people in dreams and visions today. It's possible. But if he does so, the purpose is simply to point them to the word of God and show them that he is who the Bible says he is, not because dreams and visions are the new norm for revelation. He's merely pointing them to the norm. This is who I am, and this is how you know me. And from then on, people know that's the foundation for their faith. And it's important for us to remember, too, that the word of God is the foundation for our faith, because we might think, oh, my doubts and my struggles would be lessened if I had just been with Jesus while he walked the earth, and if I would have seen him with my own eyes, heard his preaching with my own ears, Maybe I need to go to Palestine and walk, retrace the footsteps of Jesus and visit Jerusalem and see these historic sites the Bible talks about. That'll strengthen my faith. Well, there's nothing wrong with going to the Holy Land, and there are benefits in doing that. There, I'd love to do that sometime. But that's not the foundation for our faith. It's the Word of God. Think of Luke 16. You remember the rich man and the poor beggar Lazarus? The rich man is in hell and he sees Abraham and this poor beggar Lazarus Lazarus at his side in heaven and this rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to his own family members because this rich man thinks my family members are going to hell they need to have someone come back and tell them have faith in Jesus trust the scriptures because otherwise you will be in this horrible place of punishment and what does Abraham say to the rich man's request? No. Your family members have um, Moses and the prophets. Let your family listen to them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent and believe. Abraham says, no. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, meaning if they don't listen to the scriptures, they won't be persuaded either if someone rises from the dead. Scripture is sufficient for our faith. That's the message Jesus is giving. And these disciples, they do believe the scriptures. The fire of their faith has been revived as scriptures explain. And Jesus calls us too to look at the scriptures. And that is the basis for our faith. If you think John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's what Jesus calls us to do today. Believe by what we see with the eyes of faith in Scripture. Now, as he's done working his way through the Old Testament, uh, they draw near to Emmaus. Jesus acts as if he's going to keep going. He's not play-acting or being deceitful. He just, he's testing their faith and testing how hungry they are for more of the Messiah they've been hearing about. And they are hungry. They plead with him, please stay. They urge him. And so the stranger accepts the invitation. And point three, they break bread together. Quite likely that Jesus enters into the home of these two disciples. And after the lengthy journey, Jesus seats himself in their home and the two disciples prepare a meal for him. Then it's quite interesting because when it comes time to eat, there's this complete reversal of roles. Suddenly, the guest, Jesus, becomes the host. It's interesting, right? Verse 30, 
as he sat at the table with them, they don't know who it is yet, but he, the guest, took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. It's quite unusual. He prays. He serves the meal. Normally the host would do that, but Jesus is now the host. And that's when the moment of recognition comes, when he broke the bread. Something there caused them to open their eyes. What exactly was it? Was it the words he spoke? Perhaps. Was it his something in the inflection of his voice, a gesture? Was it the holes in his hands that they saw as he broke the bread? Maybe a combination of all these things, right? But this was God's appointed time to have them recognize Jesus and have their eyes open. It's especially the language of breaking bread that Jesus uses to reveal himself. And these disciples would have been familiar with this language that Jesus used here. We find two other places in Luke where we find the same four verbs reflected. Jesus once fed a crowd of 5,000. And in Luke, 19, uh, Luke 9, verse 16, we read, He took the five loaves, there's the word took, and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed it and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude. So as Jesus is speaking these words and breaking this bread, bells are starting to ring. And maybe they also recall how after that he said, I am the living bread. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Or this may have recalled for them the language of the institution of the Lord's Supper. They weren't there, but they might have heard of it. And Luke wants us to think about that. In the Lord's Supper, when he instituted it, we read in Luke 22, verse 19, that he took bread, he gave thanks, or you could say blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. You see, Jesus reveals himself in the breaking of bread. This is when the aha moment comes. And they start to realize, oh, his body was broken on the cross for me. This is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament spoke about. Their eyes are open now. They realize he is the risen Christ. And then what? Their eyes were open, verse 31, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. Isn't that something? He showed them through the word and through the sacrament that this is who I am. You don't need to linger and physically see me. It's through the word and through the Lord's Supper that I will build your faith. And their hearts were burning with excitement. They thought, we got to share this news. And so now they had gone from Jerusalem to Emmaus with downcast hearts. Now they're going from Emmaus back to Jerusalem with hearts that are filled with hope. They're burning with zeal. It's not even an advisable time to travel. It's evening. There's hills, there's bandits and robbers hiding in the hills. It's dangerous. People wouldn't usually travel at that time. But they've got news to share, so they go. They're willing to risk something in order to share this good news. They're so hungry for the word of the Lord and to share the news of the risen Christ. And so that should make us pause and ask, are we hungry for the word of the Lord? Do we want to know him and see him in the word? Do we read it ourselves and hunger to see Christ in it? And also, are we those who have burning hearts who want to share the message of the risen Christ with others? And are we willing even to take measured risks in doing so? 
That's what we are called to do. So we've seen that Jesus walked with these sad, dejected disciples, and they felt let down by Jesus, the Messiah. But that's only because they didn't know the word in its entirety. And that's why it's important for us. Know all of scripture. Know that for the Christian life, part of what the word says is, before we wear the crown, we must bear the cross. There are hardships, but God will never abandon us in our Christian life. He will never leave us or forsake us. When you pass through the waters, he says, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Know the scriptures that there will be hardships, but Jesus is with us in the midst of them. And there's glory on the other side of it. And also, if you know someone who is sad or dejected or struggling with their faith or has no faith or has walked away from the faith, journey with them, listen to them before you talk to them, and then point them to the scriptures. Point them to Christ. Because what does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. May that be the kind of people we are. And if you don't understand how the whole Bible is about Christ, ask God to show you. It's a prayer he'll be pleased to answer. To show you how Christ is the central character of the biblical story. Let's pray.